tonight and thank you to Dan for joining us from the Wasmuth Center. Uh, Dan, if you want to just introduce yourself really quick. Hi, Dan Prinzing, the Executive Director at the Wasmuth Center for Human Rights and delighted to be with you this evening. Awesome. So tonight we'll be talking about the Anne Frank Memorial downtown Boise. My opening question is, if you wanted to talk about how it, how the memorial itself got created and the purpose behind it. Well, it's a great question, Doug, and actually very timely because it was actually 25 years ago that the national exhibit Anne Frank in the World was brought to Boise. That exhibit was attended by over 50,000 people from throughout the state in one month's time. And it was the exhibit that planted the seeds for building a memorial to human rights in downtown Boise. So we are in fact celebrating the 25th anniversary of the idea, the importance of what would a memorial to human rights say and represent within the state of Idaho. And so it is really out of that history of how an, an exhibit that was so well attended, and, and you know, frankly, I get a lot of questions especially from students. Well, when did Anne Frank come to Idaho? Why Idaho? With uh, Well, as we know, she never came to Idaho, but something in her story had so re resonated with those who attended the exhibit that that's what fueled the idea for a permanent tribute. Nice. Uh, that actually answered my follow-up question, which was why Anne Frank specifically. Um, is there any other reason actually why Anne Frank uh, was used as the inspiration icon for a human rights memorial? I may have to always tell groups that are on docent-led tours of the memorial that really the memorial is a tribute not to the person, but to the power of her words. Okay. It was the, the words that Anne crafted in her diary that so resonate. It is her hope for humanity. It was in this un speakable horrors of the Holocaust in which she had crafted such an important message for who and what are we? You know, I, there's one particular diary entry and we actually have it etched into the stone of the memorial when she questions, why is this happening just because we are Jews? Where she really begins to question when we begin to target the other. And of course we define the other as someone targeted, demeaned, uh, marginalized by race, religion, orientation, ethnicity, gender, ability, whatever factor be in there. And she really begins to question that. And I think it was in that that her story resonated, that people began to identify with, here was this young lady, a teenager, in captivity or hiding for two years before being rounded up by the secret police and sent to the concentration camps who had captured so much in her diary. And once again, it's the power of those words that I think really resonated with visitors to the exhibit. Um, given Idaho's history with hate groups, especially in Northern Idaho, do you mind touching on just that history a little bit if you're able to? But I think that adds significance to the presence of the memorial. The, if we take it back historically, so it was the late 70s and early 80s when that Aryan compound existed in North Idaho. And it's when we're named after Bill, we are Osmos Center for Human Rights. Well, Bill was the Catholic priest in Coeur d'Alene 
who was asked to be the spokesperson for the Kootenai County Task Force on Human Relations. It is said he was a very charismatic priest, and he chronicles in his book, Hate is My Neighbor, which I highly recommend for folks that are not familiar with this chapter in our history. It is a wonderful look at what was actually transpiring in North Idaho that really impacted throughout the state. But in his book, he actually talks about the part of the reason that he may have been approached to become the spokesperson was the fact that he was a priest. He did not have family because they knew ultimately if he was put on the front line there, his life would be in danger. And so, uh, which obviously then as part of his life story, he became certainly that which we model our work after. What do you do when you're confronted by hate? Well, Bill never shrunk. He never stepped back. He got louder. He got more passionate. And he said, how do we confront hate with it? So I think it begins to tell us a very interesting story of how did the memorial came to be? Well, we come out of that history of the compound. We come out of the history of those in Coeur d'Alene who stood up against the compound. Then we have to uh, bring the story a little forward to 1993 when there was an initiative on ballot. It was called Proposition One, and it was an anti-gay initiative. In other words, really restricting uh, rights of the LGBT community in the workforce and in housing in any services with it. And what we saw at the time was that the general populace reacted to that and said, no, this is not who we are. We are not a state of hate, even though we seem to have this preponderance of folks that are wanting to craft us as that. And so the populace gathered up and formed a no on one campaign. It's actually when the Ada County Human Rights Task Force coined the phrase that we still use today, not in my town, not in my state, Idaho is too great for hate, and Proposition 1 was defeated at the ballot. So it was after that, then, that this exhibit that was traveling the United States, initially, those that were um, advertising the exhibit made contact with Marilyn Schuller. She was the then director of the state's Human Rights Commission, and asking if we might be interested in the state of Idaho to bring the exhibit to town. Well, Marilyn, as we do in all nonprofit work, began fundraising because it was a pricey exhibit, uh, but with some corporate support and an extensive volunteer network, it brought the exhibit to Boise for one month's time. We talked about those who had attended but it, what it also did was it created this force within the community to say, hey, this is really who and what we are. It is not that branding that came from an iron compound. It is not this branding that, dare I say, was being proposed by the state legislature. It is, in fact, that we are much greater than hate. And let's create this symbol, hey, the memorial, as something of our shared values, that this is really who and what we are. What, so I guess my follow-up question would be, is that the, the fact that the population is centered in Boise and that's considered like the main hub of Idaho, is that the reason why the memorial's in Boise rather than up north where the Aryan compound was kind of as this sign, like even here, 
where this hate is centered, we are still above hate. Yes. Well, and I think there's a two-parter to that, because what we do know, Coeur d'Alene has a human rights institute. Mm -hmm. They were founded out of the, the confrontation with the earring compound to really become that education force in North Idaho for human rights education within schools. Then Greg Carr, a major Idaho philanthropist devoted to human rights, and of course we know more of Greg's story today, saving the country of Mozambique and his work in Gorongosa National Park. But Greg actually provided the funding for the purchase of the former Aryan compound to become a peace park in North Idaho with it. So there's always been that presence. Now back to your question though, I think it's always been symbolic that a human rights memorial would be built in the state's capital city. Yeah. I, I like to reference actually that because of our location right in the heart of the city that we are in fact the heart of the state. Mm -hmm. That we are what, it, what we are the beating behind this force for good. That what does the memorial represent? What does it say about us as a people? You know, so often when I give tours in the memorial, I introduce the fact that the Idaho Anne Frank Human Rights Memorial is the only Anne Frank Memorial in the United States. It's also one of the few places in the world where the entire text of the Universal Declaration for Human Rights is on public display. And it's also recognized as an international site of conscience. So usually when I have introduced that in the tour, the first question I get is, well, how the hell did that happen in Boise, Idaho? And I think that speaks to that history that, that put it in place, that there was an import and a statement that is made. Now, but with your question with though, I think we also have to recognize the nature of Boise and the nature of those folks that live here that so embrace the idea of the memorial. Uh, I'm always apt to share that the memorial was not built by the city of Boise, nor was it built by the state of Idaho. It was built and funded by individuals, businesses, and foundations who said, yes, this is who we are. And I think it is that nature of something that was such a, a start from a grassroots campaign that that's why it has such import today. I've often said that had it been built by a state or a municipality, almost like a top-down approach with it, yeah. it would have been an imposed idea. But rather, this was a groundswell. This was an idea that germinated and said, yes, we support this. I've often credited to the, uh, our initial board, the first board of the Wasmuth Center, and really crafting the vision for the memorial. And we recognize we have two visionary, or excuse me, three visionary founders. Uh, affectionately, I call them, they are our founding mothers. It was their idea that generated what we have become. Well, it was really that support that they were able to garner from a population for an idea. Nobody knew what the memorial was going to be. Mm -hmm. They were putting out an idea for this symbol, this place that now in many terms for many folks in the valley, it's sacred. This is sacred land for what it represents with it. But I've often thought how they were able to fundraise for an idea. I can tell you just a couple of years ago when we added the Marilyn Schuler for, for human rights within the memorial, it was a lot easier fundraising for that classroom than it was for the initial funding of the memorial because we weren't 
uh, we weren't selling an idea. We were selling an actual, this is what exists. Now can we expand upon it? Going off of that, do you have any future plans for the memorial? Or do you have to wait to see what happens with the potential downtown library expansion or anything <laughs> that's, that happens? That's a good question. Actually, I do appreciate uh, shortly after she took office, Mayor McLean uh, called me in. And we actually talked about, because if you're familiar with our physical location of the memorial, but also our office adjoins the memorial. So we're right there within that hub. And so the mayor really wanted to examine not only all of that property and space, but then uh, to your question, what are our future plans? Well, what we have promised the city is we have tapped out the space of the memorial. That when we added the Maryland Schuler Classroom for Human Rights, we actually expanded the memorial almost a third in size. What we have with the city is a licensing agreement. Okay, it is city land. That's why it is recognized as a public park. But we control all the messaging and the programming within that. Now, that also comes with the caveat, uh, even with the addition of the Maryland Schuler Classroom. I had to go to the city for approval. We wanted to add this physical structure within it. Yeah. I had to get the approval of the city. And with their blessing, then they said, now go out and fundraise for it. In other words, they were not going to fund it, but they had to certainly be in the loop to approve it and what it would be within the city. So that all occurs within our licensing agreement. Now, what we're very excited about is the city has now agreed to expand that licensing agreement. And we are in preparation to fundraise and physically build a new WASMA Center for Human Rights within that licensing agreement. Well, actually, where our current office is located in a small parking lot that adjoins the memorial, uh, the city is providing a piece of a parcel of land that uh, joins right to the back side of the memorial, and that's where we'll actually build the new office with it. Well, I, what I'm excited about is what it couples together. So here we have the only Anne Frank Memorial in the United States. And now imagine a comprehensive human rights education center located within that physical licensing of a memorial. No other city, no other state can say that. Yeah. And I thought if we really want to project ourselves as a welcoming and a compassionate community, what a positive statement to have not only the memorial, but this education entity that is devoted to that devoted to taking the memorial's message and sharing it with communities and classrooms around the state. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting. I never knew that. And I also never knew until I, I honestly, until I worked at the IHA, I never knew the Wasmuth Center was a thing. Mm -hmm. I never thought, oh, like this is a memorial, but it's also owned by the city, but it still has, you know, a private entity governing it, essentially. Well, and actually, you're not unique in that. And that has always been one of our greatest challenges because the center has never operated under the same name as the memorial. Mm -hmm. Even though we are two entities, it is us and we are it. I mean, we were found, so as I said, it was 25 years ago that Exhibit came to town. Well, we were founded a year later. Next year is our 25th anniversary as an organization because we were founded for the purpose of constructing a memorial to human rights. 
And then once the memorial was dedicated to the public in 2002, we then became recognized as the memorial's education arm, that we are in charge of the programming, on-site, off-site, and online. But many people know, especially in the education community, they know our work as the Wasna Center without the memorial. Mm-hmm. Most folks know the memorial without the realization that there is an education center behind it. And so, yes, you have just spoken to one of our greatest obstacles as an organization is just messaging that fact that it's us and we are it. How did you actually end up getting involved with the Wasp Center? Well, A, I'm old, you know, so I've been around a long time in the Valley with it. It actually goes back to when I was a classroom teacher in the Boise District. When that first exhibit was going to come to Boise, a volunteer group formed a committee of educators to write classroom lessons to prepare students for coming to that exhibit. I was on that first curriculum team. When I left the classroom and went to the State Department of Education, I then drafted the first joint project between the state and the center in creating a scope and sequence of human rights lessons for the classroom. When I left state government at the end of Dr. Marilyn Howard's administration, I came to the center as the education director. And coincidentally, Marilyn Howard came on to the board of directors. So we continued to work together in the capacity or under the umbrella of the WASMA Center. So I've often said I have been around since day one before there was a memorial. And now, as I proudly tell my board, I am not their oldest employee, although I am their longest employee. Now, with your expansion and also the Wasserman Center's 25th anniversary, are there any plans for special programming? Because I know right now you offer the Certificate in Human Rights. Yes. So is there any additional programming coming down the road that you can let us in on? Well, there is, and actually, with the added environment of COVID, Mm -hmm. we've been, it's really looking at what we do and how we do it. How do we continue to engage participation and our broader donor base? So we've got a couple of pieces for it. I've said, I just completed drafting our summer newsletter. And as I was reporting, there's only one piece of our operation that we're not able to do right now. And those are the physical tours in the memorial. We suspended all physical programming in the site just simply because I did not want our docents exposed to something. I did not want participants. We have a a phenomenal summer reading program for ages four to eight. Well, we just did not quite know how we were going to social distance four-year-olds. And so we, we adapted. And that volunteer committee has done phenomenal work in creating a brand new resource for us. So by the end of this month, Rather than the summer, read, the summer reading program occurring, we have now finalizing the production of 25 videos, the readers engaged in that program, reading the stories for children. The backdrop is always the memorial. They're filmed in the memorial. And they're sharing stories of hope and kindness, mm-hmm. diversity, inclusion, empathy, mindfulness, young literature with it. So now we've created a whole new series that we'll be posting on human rights for young listeners. 
Well, myself, I was a single father for a number of years when my daughter was very young. And this was something I would have loved to have had was, okay, let's dial up and listen to this story together rather than yeah. me always finding the books that I had to read each evening. Here was something that we could have shared and then talked about. So we're really seeing this as a phenomenal resource to share. And of course, as you well know, once anything goes online, it's not just local, it's a national or international resource. So that's part of our new programming. We are also finalizing the pieces that we'll be distributing into the schools in the fall of our Upstander Toolkit. If you're not familiar with it, born out of the messaging in the memorial, the center has two key programs. The spiral of injustice, it's really how we look at and how do we frame the discussion of injustice as it devolves in a community. And it's a whole model that we created that really demonstrates that injustice starts with words. It's language. It's the us and the them when we begin to target the other. Devolving from language to avoidance, discrimination, violence, elimination. Well, the companion piece to that was our Be an Upstander program, that how do we confront injustice? We confront or interrupt it by being an upstander. Now, as clarification, as a center, we never really developed an anti-bullying campaign. We're not really good on the anti-message. What we wanted to look at were the positive actions that each of us can take when we hear or witness injustice. Mm -hmm. Now, this was really born to us, uh, not to get political, but after the uh, campaigning in 2016, schools became just this battleground of words. And we had many parents or counselors or teachers calling us saying, my student has just been targeted at school and being told they need to leave the country. That he or she's not welcome here and we're building a wall. I mean, this was rhetoric that coming out and we have to remember that whatever is playing out nationally, it's gonna come into schools. Yeah. Kids here, kids bring it with them into the classroom. And one mother called me, just distraught with him. Here her son, a young fifth, sixth grader, is on the playground surrounded by his classmates taunting him. You need to leave this country. You're not welcome here anymore. And she said what so bothered them at the moment is there wasn't a single classmate who stood up in his defense. There were no upstanders at that moment. And she said, and you know what further exacerbates it? We're Native American and we were here first. And she said, here is this whole concept of where are the upstanders? Where are those who are going to be willing to say, hey, wait a minute, that's, that's not cool. That's not right. We don't do that here. So uh, back to the point was, so this summer, we're finalizing our upstander toolkit. It's a new classroom poster, a student brochure, student takeaways, uh, that they can keep with them to remind them of, and a brand new video. We're in production this month on a new seven minute video on really how do I act as an upstander. Now we use the acronym ACT, the A-C-T, as our action to be an upstander. The A is ask. Okay, when you just said that joke or said that word, did you mean 
to be cruel? Do you really know what that means? In other words, can we ask questions to create good conversation? What we're also working with is programming that can we confront injustice without becoming confrontational? Can we create a conversation? I still believe as a career educator that oftentimes things are said in ignorance. People don't realize the impact of the words. So can we call them out? Can we have a conversation? So that's the ask. The C is choose. You choose to be an upstander. It is a choice that is made that we actually reference in the memorial. When we were adding the Marilyn Schuler Classroom for Human Rights, we had a funder from the East Coast. He wanted to fund a special rock, a tribute, planted with a tree, to add a message into it. Well, this funder is a descendant of a survivor from the Holocaust. His family survived the Holocaust because an evangelical Christian man in Poland who owned a glass factory saved or protected his employees. And he's descended from that. And there was one key word that he wanted on the tribute in the memorial. He said, can you highlight the word that this man, Reinhold Christman, chose to make a difference? So that's our whole attitude between that attitude of being an upstander is that it is a choice. Just as much as being a bystander is a choice. It is that point of reckoning where I have to decide, am I going to step in or am I going to be silent? Well, what we also showcase is silence is also a form of agreement. So if injustice is happening and I say nothing, it's as if I am standing there in agreement with what is occurring. The rest of the acronym, the T is teach. Teach by example of how you lead your life. I'm always taken back to uh, Martin Luther King Jr. in his drum major instinct sermon. He used the line that he said, when I pass, when someone is asked to give my eulogy, do not let them say I won the Nobel Peace Prize. Let them recount that I loved and served humanity. It was how he lived his life. So that is the T. Not only do we choose to be an upstander, but we live that. We're, uh, we're always apt to say that upstander is not a noun. Or if it is a noun, it's also a verb. In other words, if you never see me as an upstander, how dare I call myself that? If you never witness me in some fashion stepping up to defend others, how dare I call myself an upstander? So that is the acronym we have, ACT, and that's the message we're putting out in schools. I'm really excited with the new video we're shooting this month because we're actually in a school and we're filming two scenarios. One, when the students hear injustice. The second scenario, when they witness. And it's that freeze frame moment in a video now what am I going to do? It's my choice. What am I going to do? Well, obviously, for the sake of our video, we're going to make the right choice both times. Uh, that's really cool that you're expanding your reach further into the schools. Um, is that a statewide program? Is, like, is the program being adopted by the Idaho Department of Education? Or is it more of like a per-school basis? 
Yeah, more per school. I, I wouldn't use the, the term of adopted by the state. That becomes a whole different process, and it's usually more in curricular materials, which I can speak to because that was my role at the state when I worked there uh, many administrations ago. What we're really looking at is we produce resources and we just, because of our donor base, we're able to just send them out to the schools. Uh, we also then conduct the training with them so that we can prove. We had a great, uh, uh, I might add, thanks to funding we'd received from the Idaho Humanities Council and supporting through the CARES Act, we were able to convert what it had been always our in-person Summer Institute for Idaho Educators, and we did it online. Well, in doing it online this year and the topic Injustice to Inclusion, we actually reached into every corner of the state, every pocket with it online, instead of teachers having to come to us for three and a half hour, uh, three and a half days, we went to them all online with it. And so we're appreciative of that funding opportunity that made it possible that that's what we're doing so much now is how do we make that outreach by mission, we're dedicated to the students and teachers in Idaho. But the reality is our programming, our resources are in classrooms around the country. And because we're an active presence online, we also are reaching internationally. So the other program I would mention uh, right now, and it is just exploding on us, is our human rights certification program. Now, this was specifically an initiative for the business community. We had companies coming to us very active in diversity inclusion. They had policy, they had presence and programming for kind of that top down. Mm -hmm. And they came to us and they said, but how do we know that our workforce embraced that? How do we know that our workforce are committed to DNI? We are as a company, but how do we know that everyone who works for us is? And so we actually received funding from Wells Fargo to develop our human rights certification program. This is a one of the kind in the country. It's a six hour online program that focuses on core human rights principles, diversity, inclusion, ethics, civility, and respect, and we couple that with now being an upstander in the workplace. You know, those conversations that take place at the water cooler, those things that are set off to the side, how can we then, these principles of being an upstander in our community, how do we translate these into principles into the workplace? Well, this is a programming, as I said, that has just exploded. We went live to the public with the program on January 20th, 2020. Human Rights Day in Idaho, MLK Berkeley. We have had over 300 new users since January. And every week we get, we're, we're constantly having to open up new sections to it. Well, that speaks to me that now, and I would say a lot of it, it's, it's coupled with the nationwide attention after the murder of George Floyd. And we're looking at the historic roots of racial injustice. I think we have a lot of companies, nonprofits, a lot of organizations within the state that are saying, we need to do something. We need to make a statement. We need to be on the forefront of the conversation. And many of them are starting it with the certification program. 
making sure that they've got a cadre of employees that are certified, making sure that the leadership team, I'm loving it as a number of nonprofits are coming in, making sure that their board members are certified. In other words, they're saying, this is who and what we are. This is what we believe in. Because the certification program is not about what the company needs to do. It's not that the company needs to do X, Y, and Z to promote diversity and inclusion. It's what do I as the employee need to do to be committed and show. So even in the call to action, it's not what am I going to do down the road. It's what am I going to do tomorrow when I show up at work? Mm-hmm. How am I going to create this respectful, inclusive environment that recognizes the broader value of diversity in our workforce? And even that idea of inclusion. It's not that everybody has a seat at the table. That's not enough. It's that everybody that is at the table is able to talk, have a voice, and that we all listen. And so it's those principles. It's that personal commitment. That's the basis of the certification program where folks can say, and literally, we did a number of focus groups in developing the program. And when we talked about what is certification and why be certified, number of the employees that we were working with gave us the feedback. And they said, because I can put this on my resume and say, these are the values I believe in. These are the values that when I apply to a company, I hope they uphold. But most importantly, this is who I am. And so this for us is a very exciting initiative, uh, certainly expanding much faster uh, than what we had even anticipated when we developed it. But you kind of begin to pick up here what we're finding in the work of the Wasmus Center. And as I say, it's all born out of the messaging, the memorial. That's where we're so tied together with it. But rather than going real wide and thin with our programming, we have our core concepts that we're just going deeper with. And now we apply those in the classroom, we apply those in the business, we apply those in the community at large. And that's what's real fun with it because the message is working. We have schools participating in our program around the country. Now we're getting registrations for the Human Rights Certification Program from employees around the country. And we're getting questionnaires out of country because it is an online product or an online resource it's attracting an international audience. With that international um, reach that you are having with the cert, with the certificate, how, does the um, Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam know about you guys here in Boise? Oh, so. Yes, and, and we've always had a great relations with it, relationship. So, and it's kind of a fun triad because we have the Anne Frank House in Amsterdam. So. I will do special requests to them, they to me, you know, when, as I said, when you are the only in the United States, that helps with our credibility and presence with it. And so we'll make some direct contact. But then we have this tribe because we also have the Anne Frank Center for Mutual Respect in New York. Now, they are the direct conduit to the Anne Frank House. We're not a chapter. We're not an affiliate of, we're an independent, but we collaborate. And so it's the programming that can generate among the three of us. And so we have had some great opportunities interacting with the Anne Frank Center for Mutual Respect with, you know, when the memorial was vandalized in 2017, one of the first calls I got was from them. 
And at that time, their executive director flew out here, brought actors from New York who actually did the production of Letters from Ann and Martin. They wanted to support the community. They wanted to support us. Uh, they feature a lot of our work as an Anne Frank Memorial in what are we doing to share not only Anne's story, but it's that broader messaging of human rights with it. And, and so it always creates this interesting kind of a symbiotic organic relationship among organizations. Mm -hmm. I couple that with, because we are recognized as an international site of conscience, well, the headquarters for the sites of conscience are also in New York. And so we've done distinct programming with them where they will call upon us as a site. Uh, last piece I did, since we created the spiral of injustice and within the memorial, we have the new statue of the other showcasing the spiral of injustice. So we developed a whole piece for them on how do you take a program idea that began at the Wasmus Center, translated into a physical, what became the statue and the memorial, and what is that messaging then in a much broader context with it. So we're always looking at, part, you know, kind of it is the parts and parcels of working with other organizations. Our reality is that there's no one out there quite like us because we have this physical memorial plus then a comprehensive education center to couple it with. Now you mentioned like adding the statue, which represents the spiral of injustice. Do you add quotations throughout the years that the memorial has been around, like as you've expanded it? Yeah. Um, and do you plan on adding any given just the recent events throughout the US, but also Idaho? Oh, I love your questions, Doug, with it. Yeah, you're stepping into our head of our day-to-day -day work with it. Uh, a little bit of background with it. The original quotes that were etched into the stone in the memorial, and there were over 60-some that were put before the memorial was expanded with the Maryland Schuler classroom. Those were selected by a volunteer committee that worked for over two years. We know that words matter. We take words seriously. And this volunteer committee spent hours, thousands and thousands of quotes submitted that they reviewed, but then they were also looking at the context for the quote. Who said, uh, you know, we use the example, none of us want the Joe Paterno effect, a great legacy that's diminished or, or really saddled by another event that occurred that really then brings back down the structure of. And so the idea that these words had to stand in not only the importance, but also frame the context of who said them. Mm -hmm. Well, because we are literally an environment where everything's carved in stone, when we added the Maryland Schuler classroom, it gave us the opportunity to add seven more quotes. So what did I do? I went back to just like we did in, in our origins. I went back to volunteer committee. Some of the committee members for the second round, same that had been on that original committee many, many years ago with it. And we looked at a wide variety of quotes that it was kind of our opportunity to say, okay, the memorial was opened and dedicated to the public in 2002. My charge to the committee is what voices are missing? And so then they took that as their charge and really identifying then other audiences, uh, updating, really adding into. So I think we've got added some very poignant quotes. To your question, we're doing it again, 
because when we physically build a new WASMA Center for Human Rights, there will be opportunity to add a couple more quotes, not only on the building itself, but also on the walkway that will link from the office into the memorial. But this is a long process. I always like to joke on tours that when we talk about that original uh, community volunteer committee selecting the quotes, one would think that human rights people are always very kind and, and very considerate of one another. Yeah, until it came to their quotes. <laughs> and then I'm heard that there are still some hurt feelings within the community of somebody's quote got selected and somebody else's did not. In other words, we become very passionate about those words. You know, so on that note, we just created this summer working with Stephanie Inman, a local uh, designer in town. I created a set of 52 cards, 52 quotations from the memorial. So literally now folks can purchase this set and display a quote a week for all year long. And they all the quotes are featured in the memorial. Well, first of all, it was difficult because we went with just 52 cards and we've got over 80 some quotes in the memorial now. And so I'm always telling folks, I hope we selected their favorite, but it really was this chance to, this power of those words and what we were hearing from teachers and folks that say, I want these quotes showcased in my classroom or in my office, added resource now. Yeah, no, and I've been there multiple times and every quote, that is in the memorial is beautiful. So I want to congratulate you and everyone that served on those committees for selecting them. You know, I get such a good, cause you know, certainly one of the strength or the backbones of our organization are the volunteers. Mm -hmm. Our docent committee is phenomenal. These are folks that dedicate timeless hours and talent to give the tours in the memorial. When we are in a non-pandemic time, and we're actually giving tours. You know, we're, we have tours for over 10,000 students a year where teachers, both K-12 and university, bringing students to really interact with the messaging in the memorial. Well, what I always love is each docent has his or her favorite quote in the memorial. It's kind of like what grounds the space for them. Mm -hmm. And when I get asked that question, which is mine, I always go to the Confucius quote because it is such a wonderful starting point for discussion. So right there etched in the stone, Confucius, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. Well, you and I know that quote. We've heard that in other forms. That is that standard golden rule with it. We just happened to go with the original source who was Confucius. And I thought, what a wonderful, when I'm asked, what does the memorial mean to me or what is the work of the Wasman Center all about? That's my go-to. I said, this is what we stand for. We are non-political, non-governmental. We're a nonprofit education center committed and devoted to what? Well, by mission, to promote respect for human dignity and diversity through education. Well, to me, Confucius quote says it all. Why would I do to you what I wouldn't want you to do to me? That's also how we begin to build a community. That's how we begin to foster empathy. And that in our programming is becoming a major term. Such a difference from sympathy. You know, sympathy basically, you know, it's, it's rough being you. Empathy, I understand. 
yeah, maybe that wasn't my battle, but I've had mine and I begin to identify with you. Where do we begin to find that common humanity that this is really a shared story? Yeah. Do you mind talking more about the design of the memorial as a whole? Um, yeah. Yeah, I, well, and I think that's an, and it's important because I think a lot of folks don't recognize the purposefulness in the design. The, um, so certainly at the centerpiece is that bronze statue of Anne Frank. Had the memorial been just that statue, perhaps the amphitheater in front of it, and if you've noticed behind the statue, etched into the concrete, the size of the secret annex in Amsterdam. Had it been just that Anne Frank story right there, it would have been a Holocaust monument, a Holocaust memorial. We had a student years ago who was doing her graduate study at Yale. She was looking at Holocaust memorials across the United States. In her study, she had selected five that she wanted to personally visit, and we were one of the five. She looked at those who were kind of the unexpected. In Holocaust memorials or monuments, if it is a community that has a large Jewish population, probably not a surprise. Yeah. Also a Holocaust. If built on the grounds of a synagogue, probably not a surprise. Boise, Idaho, yeah, a major surprise. And so that's why she wanted to come here. And what caught her was just to your question, it was the design of the memorial itself. Because she echoed, had it been just that Anne Frank piece, that would have made it just Holocaust. But the moment Anne looks across the amphitheater, there's the Universal Declaration for Human Rights, born out of the ashes of the Holocaust. She said, now we've expanded that story. Mm -hmm. So in the design, it really, the memorial is a journey. Not only is it Anne's journey, but it's our journey. It's your journey. It's mine. It's, I, I had one goal when we expanded with the addition of the classroom. I said, I want everyone, anyone, to come into the memorial and find a piece of him, her, or their self, that they are there. Their story is represented with it. And so that's what you get in the design. So architecturally, do we have symbolically the Amsterdam skyline, the arches, the angles of all the walls and the roof line? Amsterdam has the canals. We have the Boise River. Amsterdam has the bridges over the canal. We've got that great historic trestle bridge that enters into the memorial. You've got that vantage where Anne looks out the window. Now, realistically, we know she didn't do that alone. It would have been far too dangerous mm -hmm. uh, when they were in hiding. But conceptually, it is her look out into the world. It is her longing. It is her inquisitiveness. It is her hope. Buddy Elias, Anne's last immediate surviving relative, he was her cousin, three years older, came to Boise in 2014. It was he, he was the director of the Friends of Anne Frank 
in Basel, Switzerland. They control anything and everything Anne Frank. Everything Anne Frank is under copyright. It was he who granted us the permission to use the Anne Frank quotes in the memorial. He had never been to Boise, Idaho. Mm -hmm. He was a professional actor in Europe as in addition to running the Friends of Anne Frank. Well, in 2014, at the age of 88, he was coming to the United States to speak in LA. And he said, I'm gonna fly up to Boise. He came to the memorial. He came to that bronze statue of Anne. He grabbed her elbow and he just started to weep. He said, this is my cousin. And there's nothing like this anywhere else in the world. He said, for what you have captured here in the design, it is Anne's complete story. Yes, it is the Holocaust, but it is her hope for humanity. And he said, that doesn't exist elsewhere. And that's what so resonated with him. It was that much broader design. When we added the Maryland Schuler classroom, we had an educator that pointed out uh, something I had not even realized in the construction. Initially, when the memorial was built, the statue of Anne kind of stood at the, at the side margin. From Anne, then you went forward to the UDHR and then over to the quote circles. She was on the margin of the memorial. Mm -hmm. When we added the classroom, now all of a sudden she became in the center. And this educator said, it is as if now the memorial has wrapped its arms around Anne. And I thought at the time, how symbolic that is. When we are working with those who have been identified or viewed as the other, when are they, like Anne, going to feel safe to come out of their hiding? When they know they have been embraced by a community. When they know that their arms of a community are wrapped around them to protect them. And I thought, how visually symbolic now that the memorial is wrapping its arms around Anne and saying, you're safe here. When the memorial was vandalized in 2017, I had a young man who texted me early one morning and he said, I feel like I need to just come down and stand by Anne. I want to protect her. And I thought, there we go. That is what the memorial does, is we want to stand together. We want to protect one another. That's how we build a community. Yeah, and I was in Amsterdam about two years ago, visited the Anne Frank Museum, and I can definitely attest that the memorial here in Boise, it complements the museum, but they're, they're very different. Very much so, yeah. And different in good ways, not yeah. different in bad ways. Yeah. Um, I think it just tells more of the story, you know, that they become moments in time. I think what I appreciate so much, and not only in my role at the center, but in, you know, I get the great pleasure is I get to step out to that memorial every day. You know, I always say the memorial is my office. Yeah. And what gives me such pleasure is when you recognize that it is not just about a moment. I would say it's about a movement. It is about much more than ourselves. That it is much more about our aspirations. That it is much more of our vision for a community and how do we come to that. You know, and I, I equate that a lot with what we're seeing nationally 
that will the murder of George Flo George Floyd and others that that are continuing to see in the news marking this that this is more than a moment that this is a movement for justice. So back to your question a bit ago about new programs, we have a phenomenal committee this summer also working on, I said, we had crafted our spiral of injustice to examine that devolution. This summer, we're working on the spiral of justice. How do we now begin from the me into something much larger than myself? to foster or to encourage a free and just society. So I'm really excited because this is gonna be a wonderful companion piece with the spiral of injustice. I think that's the key point in the center's work is we never wanna leave folks hopeless mm -hmm. or leave in the negative. That we want to feel the hope and we want to feel the empowerment that I can make a difference. I've been using a lot in presentations this summer, especially in our work as upstanders. It's not that you and I have to do the same thing, it's just that you and I each do something. How you choose to be an upstander may look very different than how I do. That's what we're seeing in this movement rather than a movement. Because what are folks doing? Yeah, some are writing checks to support the work, some are marching in the streets, some are doing a lot of education for themselves. Some are having some real tough conversations at home. Well, to me, that's all valuable. And that is what the memorial represents, that let's start that conversation. Let's begin to not only reflect, but let's act. I've often said too, when we added the Maryland Schuler classroom, and it is really the example of who Marilyn Schuler was in her career and in her influence in the state, she was also one of those visionary founders of the memorial. She was also always needling me. She would challenge me because her mantra was always, what are we going to do? How can we step up? Mm -hmm. It's not enough to just talk about the issues or to think about them or to reflect upon. She said, that's nice, but what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do to make your mark in the world as an upstander? And I so appreciated that challenge because what in fact she did was also craft part of the messaging of the memorial. It is a call to action. That in this moment, you and I have to each decide what are we going to do? And if we choose to do nothing, that's also a choice. But is it the right choice in this time? No, I think that's a very beautiful messaging and I love how you're able to tie it back to Marilyn yeah. all the way. Um, now beyond the vandalism in 2017 that was all over the news, have you either witnessed or heard or know anything about the response from hate groups that are still in Idaho about the memorial? Well there is always like a that response from them. Yeah well it, it's one of those that you know, what a person should never do is Google their own name mm -hmm. because you don't like to see what comes out. Yeah, and when I have done that, where I have been cited and what sources have cited me and the accusations made not only about the vandalism or what the memorial, that can become a little disturbing. So you should, <laughs> you should never do that. Okay, what is our reality? 
we know hate groups exist. Mm -hmm. We know at this time they've also been emboldened, that they have always existed, but now they've almost come to the forefront, become mainstream. Yeah. And I, I was uh, talking with a colleague today, and we were looking images, at images that came out of San Diego of literally cars driving down the interstate with full-scale large swastikas in the back. I mean, proclamation. This is who and what they are with it. Okay, this attitude has been emboldened with it. Well, we know that exists. But I'm going to take you back to, as you mentioned, the vandalism. I had a reporter, a national reporter called me, and after we, the vandalism broke, first locally, nationally, and then went international, the reporter asked me the one question. She said, is this who and what voice he is? Well, that one hurt. Because she was immediately taking us back to that Aryan compound. Yeah. My response to her at the time was, watch and listen to how the community reacts. Not to the act of an individual or individuals that brought hate into the moment. Well, how did the community react? Overwhelming. It was as if someone had broken into their homes. Mm -hmm. And that memorial is personal. What did I say? It was a ground, you know, it was a ground up effort. Yep. And that's mine. How dare you step into that space that I helped funded with my pennies and nickels and dimes that came from students and businesses and individuals alike. And ultimately, when that reporter wrote her article, it was an article about how a community stands up to hate. Well, since that vandalism in 2017, we know that the community is watching over the memorial. We know even that officials in state government, whether at the municipality or at the state level, are watching it. Because as we started with, that memorial represents our shared values. This is who we are. So I'm going to always insist, and some accuse me I have pink-colored glasses or that I'm a little Pollyannish in my attitude with it, but I'm going to insist that the memorial represents more of us of who and what we are than that Aryan compound ever did that that was a small band of people that had gathered together that just happened to get a lot of media attention. But that's not who we are. Yeah, I feel like that touches to Idaho as well, that Idaho as a whole isn't like that. There's just the few that end up getting the media coverage yeah. and make it look like that. Exactly. And so I think it's a reputation that we're always going to be fighting. Mm -hmm. I think, unfortunately, out of that Aryan compound, we got branded. That's why I always get very excited when national media sources pick up on the memorial. When nationally we're being looked at for that human rights certification program. Because to me, this is a much better branding opportunity for the state. Now, you know, when you have legislation that targets the transgender community, other pieces that were passed, yeah, it kind of harkens back to what some folks think about us as, as a state, but I'm still going to push back and say, it's not who we are. It's not who we are. That we are, just as that slogan from the early 90s, we are too great for hate. 
And I think that is a gorgeous way to end tonight's talk because we are unfortunately out of time. So thank you to everyone who attended and thank you, Dan, for having this talk with us tonight. Thank you, Deb. Thank you for the opportunity.